my goodness, look at what we're doing here. And after I just told you guys that there was nothing else happening, and you totally believed me, you absolutely believed me when I said that there was nothing else going to happen after that Adolf Reed Jr. interview. But this is a special, this is a special show, and not just because I am the guest host filling in for the boys. It's special because Jacob told me it was special. But also, since it's pre-taped, I mean, why not give you a bit a bit more content? Why not? It's, it's pre-taped. It's a special pre-taped holiday extravaganza, so why not? Uh, so we've got a couple more videos some more pre-taped videos to show you and uh we're gonna call this bear with me now stay with me we're gonna call this double overtime if you can believe that i just made that up like i just i just came up with that name that is absolutely not in the notes that jacob wrote for me I made this up, that it's called Double Overtime. So to kick things off with our Double Overtime, imagine the little TM symbol on the top of that, and then some little thing under that that says trademarked to Joe Harrison, not Jacob Morrison. To kick things off, uh, we have an interview. <laughs> We've uh, we have an interview with Alabama Democratic Party Chair Randy Kelly. So, um, this we wanted to replay this because uh, this was recorded about a year ago. This was this was done about a year ago. This interview, and um, at that time, he made some claims. He made some commitments. He made some some comments and some promises and whatever and all that good stuff about wanting to build up the Democratic Party. So, since it's been a year, we wanted to take a look at that, take a, take a look back, take a look back at those claims and commitments and promises and see what, if anything, came to fruition, came to fruition. So we're going to let you listen to this. We're going to let you listen to this or watch this, whichever you're doing. And you be the judge. I mean, if you know anything about Alabama's Democratic Party. If you don't, then you have no idea how to judge this. But if you do, then you do. And then after that special interview and that special pre-taped interview from last year, which you will be judging or not, uh, we've got a summary and analysis of the Warrior Met coal strike after it ended. Y'all remember that little ordeal, as we call it? I mean, because come on, it's we're, if we're doing if we're doing Alabama centric, you know, a look back at Alabama centric uh, stuff that we've covered, it would behoove us to not mention one of the biggest labor stories in the state. Is that how you use behoove? Is it behoove? It would behoove us to not do that or it would behoove us to do that. I can't remember. But you get what I'm saying, I think. Or maybe you don't. 
So yeah, definitely felt it was appropriate to revisit that story. I mean, I'm, I'm sitting here making little jokes, but not about, not about the actual situation of uh, the, the coal miner strike, because that was a very big deal. So yeah, recap, we'll close out the show with a recap of the Warrior Met coal strike to remind folks what happened, what the stakes were, all of that. So without further ado, let's jump into our last round of videos. We're going to be talking to our guest Randy Kelly here in a bit, but I want to lay the groundwork for this conversation really quickly. Uh, we're a Union Talk radio show. Both of us are union members. Both of us are workers. Uh, we don't make money from this show. We're not professional pundits, right? We go to work. Uh, I, I do like the nine to five thing, and, and Adam has a, has a little bit, uh, you know, a, a little bit more hectic of a schedule being a stagehand. But uh, you know, the reason that we have at least a passing interest in the Democratic Party here in the state is not that we are Democratic partisans. It's because it is obvious that the Republicans don't care about us. Just a few examples that are all recent, right? Kay Ivey, in a letter with other Republican governors, is trying to get Joe Biden to rescind his executive order mandating project labor agreements on federal construction projects over $35 million. Now, this sounds like, what well, you know, what project labor agreement, $35 million. This is all like hoity-toity, I don't know what that means. That means... Project labor agreements increase wages, they make benefits better, they make the jobs safer, and they keep more of the jobs local. She is lobbying for Joe Biden to rescind the order to make those things happen in Alabama on federal construction projects. That's all you need to know about that. The Alabama Attorney General still, still has not so much as commented on child labor in his state. We have children, 12-year-old children, working in manufacturing facilities with $50,000 OSHA fines for amputation hazards, among other things. And he hasn't even commented about it. The top law enforcement officer in the country, or in the state, when Democrats last year tried to pass a Pregnant Workers Protection Act in the same year that Roe would later be overturned, no less, Republicans killed it. Republicans want to keep pregnant workers want to allow pregnant workers to be discriminated against because they're pregnant. And yet, they want them forced to be pregnant. Tommy Tuberville read from a Warrior Met press release when his constituents were in D.C. testifying to how that company is screwing them over. When, his, when Alabamians were in D.C. on Talking about how Warrior Met and these private equity firms are screwing them over, Tommy Tuberville read from the press release of international private equity firms, not from Alabamians. Not a single Republican, in fact, has supported these striking miners. Instead of supporting workers in their state, instead, Republican politicians and their pundit class want to make us mad at each other. They want us to attack each other. They want to attack immigrants. They want to attack gay folks so that we don't get mad at all their buddies donating to their campaigns, right? So it's obvious, it's obvious to folks paying attention, it should be that the Republican Party wants to grind working people into powder because they are fully beholden to the bosses. And it would be nice to have a party 
in the electoral sphere that stood up for working people, that was a partner to working people, to labor. And for now, and that actually had some power to do something for us. And for now, the main opposition party is the Democrats, who I do want to say have done some things for working people in Alabama and then, and then more uh, federally. They were able to successfully block the anti-protest bill, which would have, would have further hampered our ability to strike in the state. And like I said, Democrats tried to pass a Pregnant Workers Protection Act to protect pregnant folks from discrimination on the job. And one or two of them have even been supportive of the coal miners. And the Tuscaloosa County Party has donated to their strike fund. And the state party, at one point anyway, was sending out fundraising emails for them. Of course, there are some times that they underperform. I saw merchandise of several local Democratic candidates here in Huntsville, and not a single piece of their merchandise had a union bug on it. Who knows if they were even made in the country, right? Could have been made in China. One of these Democrats with non-union merch was bragging in an ad about having been president of the local council of bosses, also known as a chamber of commerce, at a time when she was president of that organization, at a time when those organizations were lobbying the legislature for immunity from liability for putting their employees in egregious risk to COVID in the workplace, a lobbying effort that was successful in Alabama, by the way. And then there are the whole suite of issues from which Democrats are simply absent in the battleground. That they're just not present in any meaningful way. The Democratic Party in Alabama has, through multiple changes in leadership in this state, gone from controlling both chambers of the state legislature to almost total irrelevancy since 2010. A party that cannot field candidates for half the races, much less all of them, could hardly be considered functional. And a party that does well to lose by 20 points, that's doing well and in a supermajority of district could hardly be considered competitive. And those are just a couple of, of the many symptoms of deep, deeper issues with the party in this state. Yeah, and I, and I want to jump in here and just share a few thoughts, uh, particularly after this election. And I want to start by saying that the working class in Alabama, as elsewhere, is the majority, right? We are the majority numerically. We're also the most diverse class. And, you know, it's it's uh, worth reflecting as we talk about how the Republicans do not represent us, that we don't have representation in the state of Alabama. Working class people, we don't have representation. We don't have legitimate opposition to the far right. We don't have a viable opposition to right wing ideology and to the right-wing politicians who dominate this state at the behest of bosses. And, you know, I'm tired of Alabama being the best at everything bad and the worst at everything good, right? I'm tired of Alabama's quality of life ranking at or near the bottom on every single metric. Yeah. And I know I'm not the only one. Working-class people deserve better in the state of Alabama and elsewhere. And for me, I think and I want an interracial working class movement that can actually change the balance of power here in Alabama and elsewhere. 
That's what I want to see. And frankly, I think it's our best and only hope to respond to the multiple layers of crisis that we're experiencing. We have a societal downward spiral of exploitation, of oppression, and environmental destruction. And if we were to pull ourselves out of it, it's going to take everyday people, white and black, gay and straight, native and immigrant, all pulling together along our common interests and our common ground as working people, as people who don't own anything but our labor that we have to sell to somebody else and hope it's enough to survive on. That's the state of the situation here in Alabama, and we don't have an adequate voice. And so, you know, that's been on my mind this week as I've, I've digested the, this election and these election results, and as we prepared to talk with, with Chairman Kelly, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm very appreciative of his time to come on the show and, and talk with us, and I'm looking forward to hear what he has to say, um, because I, I think there must be dialogue between those who are in positions of political leadership and those of us who are out living our lives, hoping for progressive change, trying to make a difference in the community. So I think that the, the big questions, and I think you were hitting on them there, for working people in this state are these. Will the Democratic Party in Alabama be able to pull itself out of the slump it is in and be able to once again contest Republicans in a serious way? How does it do that? If they do, will they represent the interests of working people as a contestant in the political arena? Is it worth you, listener, as a working person, devoting any of the time that you've been able to get free from your boss, any of your hard-earned money, to the party, to these candidates? Are the people at the helm capable of turning this apparatus into a real force, and will they have your interests in mind. I think this is only a touchstone in a long debate that working people have been having since Republicans and Democrats have emerged as the two main parties in our system. And it's a debate that's going to be had long after this conversation, right? right? Um, we're not going to solve We're not going to solve it here. But to help us work through some of these questions today, we do have the man at the helm of the Alabama Democratic Party today. Uh, the man who has been at the helm since August, Reverend Randy Kelly of Huntsville. Uh, Mr. Kelly, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us this morning. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you for your invitation. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So, yeah, I uh, like I said, really do appreciate your time. I'm sure you're busy. Um, and and so and, and you know, I, I we definitely you know we're, we're interested. Just stop in on the word business. There, I got a I got a wedding today, a funeral today. <laughs> Supposed to be at a minister's conference today from the association. Yeah. So uh, every day is a busy day. Absolutely. But I love yeah. it. Absolutely. And we appreciate you taking the time. And so let's start. Let's talk about you being the person of the, at the helm. Uh, how did you get here? And and why did the folks on the State Democratic Executive Committee trust you to lead the party during this moment? Well, I have come up through the ranks to be chair in the Democratic Party. I started off as a member of the Alabama Democratic Conference, became Alabama Democratic Conference uh, county chair, regional chair, state vice chair, became a DNC member, the vice chair of the party for two terms, was elected as the vice chair of the Democratic National Committee Black Caucus, 
as well as to the Associated State Democrats. So I've come all the way up through the rank of the Democratic Party. So what is, you know, what is your vision for the party? What, um, you know, did that play into, did that play into the people that, that did vote for you on, on the committee? That Was there a, you know, was, was there a specific kind of organizing plan that you presented people with? Or, or was it just by virtue of, like, having been around for a while, right? Well, I have been working diligently for a while particularly in the area of social justice. I have a background as an SCLC president, Southern Christian Leadership Conference president, as well as an NAACP president. In the United Methodist Church, I've served as the convener of religion and race for the entire North Alabama Conference. And we've been uh, very visible, very vocal here. In this area, I am the political actions chair of the NAACP in Madison County, which is the largest one in the state. I'm the social actions chair of the Greater Huntsville, uh, uh, Greater Huntsville Interdenomination Ministerial Fellowship. That's the largest ministerial fellowship in this area. And I'm on the board of Interfaith Mission Services and a number of other things. I have been mm -hmm. extremely active. Uh, and I sure. passed it in Birmingham and been a talk show host. I was talk show hosting guest and in Birmingham. Yeah. So you can so you can give us some tips after right. the show. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and and I do want to. I need a job on that. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, and and you know I so the and I and I think that all, all that is relevant. You know all these the you know you you've been chair of a lot of different organizations and all of this stuff. But uh, but but the question was what is what is your vision for the party and the concrete goals that you have uh, for for your term as chair. Um, well, how are you gonna? How are you gonna parlay these positions and these and these connections that 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 it sounds like you have to make the the Democratic Party to make the Democratic Party relevant? Okay, I think we've got the first of all start off with the problem, uh, as you should know if you don't know that Alabama is one of the most racially polarized states in the nation. Uh, President Obama ran, he lost by a record margin, but Donald Trump won by a record margin here. And the South has been going Republican since Lyndon B. Johnson signed the Voting Rights Act. He said, mm -hmm. I'm going to sign this act. I'm a, I feel that I would turn it over to the South, but this is the right thing to do. Then you had a number of whites left based on the Civil Rights Act that was achieved in Birmingham under the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth and many others. And then you had another flight when Brown versus the Board of Education in 1954 was passed in that Supreme Court decision, but school integration came about in the late 1960s, around 1968, based on school integration. That galvanized whites to go from the, some whites that didn't want to go to school with blacks, the so-called moral majority, which I call it me a moral majority, they were galvanized. And you had other whites that was galvanized. And these uh, galvanizing issues came about because of perceived black progress. Now here in Alabama, one thing is not 
is hardly ever shared. We have more black elected officials in this state than any other state in the nation, but that has come about because of activism, civil rights activism, and the gains that we have achieved is based on civil rights activism. And so you said it, uh, your co-host said it succinctly, we got to pull together because we got more in common than we have in differences. And you know, the Republican Party don't give a hill of beans about Blacks, nor poor people, nor any diversity as far as that is concerned. And we all didn't come here on the Nina Hinton and Santa Maria, but we're all in the same boat now as he shared. And I was intending to share before he shared, he just stole it out of my brain. We're at the bottom of everything that's good and at the top of everything that's bad. Hmm. The Republican Party is pro-rich. And of course, they're against women's rights. They're against uh, raising the minimum wage. Most of the folks that's voting for Republicans can't name not one thing that the Republican Party is doing. And even the candidates don't even promise you anything but trickle down hmm. economics. They're waiting on economics to trickle down. It's just like Chicken Little waiting on the sky to fall. Hmm. And so these poor people are like a crazy woman in love with a no good man. The more they get mistreated, the more they love it. What progress have we made under the Republican Party? So we've got to tell the story collectively, those of us who are conscious and those of us who are of a good will. Now, Black people never would have changed, gained into that. The Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, the Public Accommodation Act, if it had not been for white folks of good will. So we've got to appeal to white folks of good will and tell them that the things that's on the state, on state, at state, you got uh, folks like um, Lindsey Graham and other uh, Republicans that's talking about cutting Social Security. A lot of our seniors, mothers and grandmothers live off Social Security. You have a party uh, where you now have Joe Biden, who has created 10 million jobs, the jobs that Trump lost. Uh, uh, and the, in denial of the Republican, just an incompetent, dumb, racist man in office, and his only appeal was racism. So we've got to really come to our senses here in Alabama if we're going to make progress. I do think that that a lot of that is is important, and, and a lot of that is 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 uh, you know it. Let me could... let me share this. Let me share this now. In four months, now I'm not going to do a miracle. I right. was naked in mid-office, and I inherited this party. They had people before me was making uh, half a dozen of them, uh, making over $100,000 a year. And uh, one of them was making $150,000 a year. Mm -hmm. But now when I took the ham, ham of the organization, then they didn't have money in it. Right. And also even the, the um, website. Even the password was not even uh, passed down in the website. So we got to rebuild hmm. it from the bottom. And it's at really as an all-time low now. But on the other hand, I think it's still a, a good time because I plan on working, uh, organizing and mobilizing young people, coalitions, organizations. Here at um, this church I pastor, we have one of the largest June teams. We have the largest June team in the state and probably one of the largest ones in the country. And I put that together in two years. 
we have 50 organizations and eight churches join us every year. And we had a Juneteenth in the pandemic before it was a holiday. Prior to here, I had the largest one in the state. We had Chinese, Japanese, Native Americans, Korean, country and Western white people. We pulled them together. If we can do that for a festival, we can do that for the progress of, of this state. Here on these, these grounds here, last this year we had an international delegation of people uh, from Global Times, from Brazil, Peru, Bolivia, Guatemala, Cuba. We had uh, the U.S. Huntsville Missile Defense Agency. And who's who in Huntsville kicked off by the mayor? Now, if we can mobilize a coalition like this, it's gonna take organizing and mobilizing and energizing our base. I, I was gonna jump in here, Jacob. Um, and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that in terms of what you inherited, uh, because that was actually the next question we had. Um, because I think in fairness, we have to state that you became the chair in August, and we're talking about issues that have festered for, for many years. Uh, for the entire adult lifetime of, of me and Jacob here. Um, and so regardless of what people think about your short term in office so far or, or, you know, your election, it can't all be put on you or any one administration because we have to acknowledge that the Democratic Party in Alabama has not been viable in multiple election cycles under multiple administrations. So I do appreciate that you you kind of shared a little bit. You've been candid. Uh, about the state of the party that you inherited. Um, and so, you know, I want to switch gears kind of on, on that note, though. There are obviously some really deep divisions within the Democratic Party activist base. Uh, not that there's a lot of those in the state of Alabama, but there are Democratic Party activists and, and there's division there. And uh, in fact, it seems like about the only time Democrats have been making headlines late, lately is when there's that kind of, you know, drama, uh, as you put it elsewhere. And, and I think that's that's fair to call it that, um, you know, there's there's been media coverage of your dispute with the vice chair. We don't want to get into all that uh, because we're focused on the bigger picture here. Uh, but I know you spoke with Josh Moon and David Person recently uh, about that issue at length. And so. You know, if folks want to hear more about that, they can tune into that. Uh, but we wanted to, to zoom out a bit and, and look at the bigger picture of building bridges, building coalitions, as, as you mentioned. Um, what are your plans and thoughts moving forward to make use of the people who already are with you in some form or fashion? They are involved in Democratic Party activism in some way, whether it's, you know, aligned with ADC or, or aligned with other organizations. But how do you plan to make use of the people who are already with you and build bridges to, to grow that coalition and start to heal the divides within the party? Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's just one individual divide, and we need to just talk about that. The issue of that was something that uh, my vice chair sent to the media, but actually my vice chair has had some very bizarre behavior uh, the entire time she's been elected, but you've never heard of a problem like that in the Democratic Party before. And I called for a convention. She was against that. And the convention was to heal and build. That's what the theme was. But she 
was against that specific convention. And in that convention, the Hill and Bill, I saw her got into a confrontation with three different people. And two were black and one was white. So, and then she was, I was sending correspondence out to our SDC members like any chair would do. And she would send up follow-up correspondence after I sent my correspondence out. And then I saw one article uh, where she said she was the co-chair of the party. Well, we don't have co-chairs of the party. And then she had sent out a uh, correspondence uh, was saying that she's calling the press conference. Well, that's a violation of protocol. I just shared how I've been the vice chair of all kinds of things and, and chair, even president of my student body in seminary. But the official voice of the party is for the chair. So I sent that out to our SDC members and she sent that uh, to the media. And that was the Craig drum. And this white racist Republican newspaper is not gonna give the Democratic Party any positive media. That's why it's important, always been important for having black radio, black newspaper, because they told our story. If you're familiar with the history of it, they tried to outlaw black papers because they painted uh, organizations with blacks in a positive light. So we got to create our own media. And we got to tell our own story because the devil still, if we don't tell our story, the devil will always steal our story and rob us of our glory. Yeah, and I mean, I think that um, I think that 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 people having their own media is, is important. As opposed Obviously, to, I mean, that's, you that's, know, that's what, what we're, that's what we're here, trying to do here. And, and um, we're proud to be on WZZA, which is a historic black station up in, in Northwest Alabama. I'm sure you're familiar with. But well, you know, Adam, really quick though, I, I wanted to. Um, dig dig into that a bit because and and we are we're, we're live on on youtube as well as the radio and so on youtube you know people can chat in and, and we have some people that are, that are on the on the committee that that uh that are watching and and they're they're chatting and telling us some thoughts and 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 you know some of them are, are saying that uh from one member uh she says i say as a, a committee member i have received no emails from chair kelly and i have asked directly to be added um, the chair's never sent any emails to SDEC members because only Tabitha has bothered to try to put together a full list. Um, new SDEC members haven't received anything. Um, why is that? Uh, why why is he saying that 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 he does have a full list and that he is? And and so you know it seems like there's a there's at least a contention saying that that you know that uh, Tabitha is the one that is that has actually been able to to talk to them and that's actually tried to talk to them and. And you know, as far as calling a press conference and, and talking to the media, I mean, it, it, do you not think that that talking to the media is is a as you know somebody that the state committee elected to be vice chair? Do you do you not think that talking to the media is is something that a vice chair can do? She can call a press conference on her own, but not for the party. Yeah, I'm the chairman of the party, mm -hmm. and it's, and it's two anything with two heads is a freak. Right. So it's going to be one chair of the party as long as I'm running the party. And, mm -hmm. and uh, but but the I'm glad they call a call in because we've tried to get the information of who was on the committee because the court reporter never sent us this information. We have not received that information yet. And now Miss Eichner may know, but she should have been gave us all of the information of the people that was on there. 
And that's why some people didn't get in the correspondence because we didn't even know they were on the committee. And that was one reason we had even a get acquainted event and pull the convention together so we could find out who was on there. But the court reporter has not given us that information as up to this date. And I would have to have ESP to know extrasensory perception to know who in the ham sandwich was on the committee. There was no way for me to know. Sure, sure, but I, I, I think that I think that we know we know we had everybody, but but right. yeah, it's not my fault. Yeah, I've we've tried persistently, so it wasn't a smooth transition. Mm -hmm. Now, if I had been chair, I would have had everything in place. I would have had a plan for the candidates and all this kind of stuff. But I inherited no plans, no funds, or anything like that. As I just shared. It's at an all-time low. And the reason why I can say it's an all-time low because I've been on the committee. Sure. And and I mean, you know, I, I, I don't doubt that there are, you know, I, I didn't realize that they hadn't given you the password to the website, for example. I think that that's, pretty, <laughs> that's not great. But, uh, you know, um, you, you mentioned in, in your interview that you hadn't even in, even talked to the vice chair since the, since the uh, you know, public kerfuffle. And, and then the... Uh, you know, the, the the person here in the chat uh, is saying that, that she's given you her email directly and she still hasn't and requested to be added and still hasn't been added. But but it, it sounds like you're you're going to be working to, to make an effort to add add the people that that are you know calling the office and sending sending emails and requesting to be added. Is that what we're understanding? Yeah, well, personally, I don't have the email. Um, she hadn't sent it to me. Mm -hmm. I don't know who sent it to, but I don't have it. But we put everybody on there whose name that we had, and we even have made repeated appeals for that. And we'd be happy to put a name on there. Yeah. Well, I think I think what we see here is obviously there's some communication issues inside the party, um, mm -hmm. and I think that it would be a mistake to say that the division is solely down to one individual because um, even if even if that one individual is is certainly part of this there are people who are aligned with with Ms. Eisner mm -hmm. um, there are people who are, are kind of all you know taking sides so to speak and so you know and that's kind of what we were were hoping to to look at as is is to We've see, yeah, sides. like how are right, and how together. are right? How are we gonna how how are how are you gonna? Because you know we're not <laughs> we're not at, democratic. At but how how are y'all gonna be able to? We have communicated. We right. have communicated. That's not true. That we have not communicated. We've communicated. Oh, since since, since okay. Well, I, 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 well, that that may have happened. So I just listened to the podcast for, of you and right. Josh Moon this morning, and, and well, that on that podcast, that was at that time. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay. Well, and and so. What what is the what is the plan to kind of bring those factions together? Well, actually, uh, I think the main thing that brings people together is working around a common issue. Uh, issues bring people together. As a longtime church pastor, that uh, builds relationship, working together for common causes. And yes, we've got different cultures and different backgrounds, but it's a matter of synthesizing those things and then being able to disagree and not being disagreeable. Hmm. 
I think that that I you know I that's something that that we certainly try to take into the union hall. Uh, try to be able to disagree without being disagreeable. I think that's Absolutely. good advice. Um, you know, so on to the the next question that we had was about the fielding fielding of candidates. And obviously, right, you've been chair since August, and and that was long past the deadline to get on the ballot. So so the lack of candidates on this election is is certainly. That's certainly not on you, but this has been an issue since, I mean, even in 2018, we had, more, you know, there were more Democrats on the ballot than, I think, 2014. Uh, but this year, Libertarians actually fielded more candidates in Alabama than Democrats. And they did that despite only knowing they'd have ballot access a month before the deadline. And um, just, to, just to give a, a practical example on it. I counted up on my ballot in Athens, Alabama. I had 26 offices to choose from. Democrats had seven candidates. Libertarians had 12. And 10 Republicans were unopposed. So there were more unopposed Republicans on my ballot than Democrat options. So what is your plan to increase candidate recruitment so that folks uh, at least have an option on Election Day? That's it. Aggressive, aggressively seek out candidates. Now... I'm a former city council person. Uh, I ran, first time I ran, I would have been shocked if I had won because I was just a, a, a radical out there addressing issues trying to improve my community. And uh, I didn't have uh, the money to run a campaign. I didn't really have the message and I didn't have the machinery. Those are the basics. And candidates can't win an election when you don't really have their basics. Now, if you got a message and you're able to organize, you can build a machine. And then you're looking at a uh, state. I was talking to President Biden, and uh, at the end of our conversation, he asked me, how was it going in Alabama? And I said, Mr. President, you know this is a deep red state. And he said, well, you wrong. He said, it's a crimson state. It's past red. Kay Ivey, in the first report, had spent $10 million and had a quarter million dollars almost left, and there's no telling how much she didn't have on this last round. And political uh, monies normally come from big business, you know, because that's good for business. They want these politicians to be favorable to the to their business dealings and what have you. And uh, a lot of times it's just like going to the horse race. You're not going to go out and bet on a horse that's going to be losing. So we've got to recruit candidates and we got to groom candidates and we got to provide candidate training. But now there's candidate training out there that's offered by the Democratic National Committee. You had the best practice institute, you had the National Democratic Training Committee. But the folks are not familiar with that. We're going to make sure that the people are familiar with that kind of training because there are some people want to run, but they don't know how to campaign. Now, the next time I ran, I had name recognition. People um, knew me. I even got a talk show, daily talk show at 12 noon on WMGJ radio called Tell It Like It Is, where I kept the city stirred up every day. And then... Uh, I was pastoring a church 
And basically the church that I pastored was my campaign committee. We had children and senior citizens and what have you. And we built an organization without no endorsements from the newspaper or so-called big folks. We ran a grassroots campaign, but that's very rare in itself. So you need to, first of all, spend some time in planning a campaign. Uh, I think some folks spent less time in planning the campaign than they would a trip to go to uh, New York City or somewhere. I think you that just I'll... don't be people there in a deep red state. Well, mm -hmm. we don't own, we don't, um, it's not in any statewide uh, position at all. And then you're going to pop up and then unseat these, uh, these incumbents. It's hard to beat an incumbent. Mm -hmm. So, so anyway, we got to work at it. We got to got to build our base, organize, strategize, mobilize, and train. And also, we got to reach a lot of these young people. I think one of our failures is that our young people, even in the African American community, they're unaware of the struggle, and many of them don't know the importance of politics. Hmm. They don't know that being engaged in civic affairs increases the quality of life indicators. Uh, that things are better in communities where people are, are active in civic participation. So we've got to work and educate them on the importance of voting and, and, hmm. and how using our vote as a weapon is a way of making a more just and a more loving world. I think those are the those are two those are two good answers. I think, and I, I'm going to ask a follow up to both of them. And the first is is the the bit to candidate recruitment, and you said aggressively seeking out candidates and and training them and planning and thinking of getting people you know um, that are that are rooted in their community. Um, and I think that that is you know I, I would agree with that. And so the 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 follow up to that is. Um, how are, because the candidate recruitment has been an issue, I think, I mean, it might, since 2010. And that's been under both kind of administrations of the Democratic Party in Alabama, under the Worley administration and then under the England administration. And so, uh, and, and both, both administrations, I think, uh, you know, objectively, objectively failed to recruit candidates. I think, you know, that's just that's just a fact of the matter and it does it's not a it's not an indictment of their character or, you know, maybe it's, you know, I, or anything like that. It's just an objective fact that they failed to recruit candidates. And so what are you taking from their failures uh, from the failures of the party in those two instances? Uh, and and how are you going to rectify those mistakes? And then the second one that you said was the importance of bringing other pe bringing people into the party, uh, bringing youth folks into the party, uh, bringing getting people civically engaged. I think that's very mm -hmm. important. And and the follow up to that is I think that at one point I believe there was talk of amending the bylaws to remove the additional caucuses within the Alabama Democratic Party, like the youth caucus, the Hispanic caucus, the LGBTQ caucus, etc. Um, is that still the case? And if it is still the case, is that a good? Is that a message that people in these groups are going to see and think that this is a party that wants them to be involved? And so, so just to recap, the questions are: the follow-up uh, is is what are what are what are your lessons learned from the failures of candidate recruitment from the past two administrations? Um, and then 
the question about amending the bylaws uh, to remove the additional caucuses. Well, well, I'm going down to well, I'm I'm going to go down to the University of Alabama and take some classes under Nick Saban. He does a good job. He does a good job. Yeah, coaching football players. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, it's 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 complex, and we're going to lay out a comprehensive uh, formula, uh, study the polls and what went wrong, and also continue to build and mobilize. And uh, one of the challenges uh, we've been trying to raise money. Of course, you you can't operate a party without money. So you, and we really don't have uh, but just a skeleton crew as far as the staff is concerned. So we're in the process of restaffing. But there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And some things I'm not going to share publicly because you never, I'm a, a veteran, a former uh, soldier who trained combat soldiers, and you never tell your enemy what you're going to do. And as far as the bylaws is concerned, it's uh, that was not my call. There were some people within the body of the party is concerned. But whatever takes place, I'm sure that it's going to be fair to all. So you you don't have a position about whether whether or not you should remove those additional minority caucuses? Those caucuses have never been removed, and they won't be removed. But the balance of it is has been somewhat a, a power struggle, and I don't know how it's going to play out. And I'm the chair. I'm neutral. I don't take one side, one side or the other. In fact, they their vote will uh, make the determination how they voted, voted down or voted up. And it's not anything that any uh, thing that I have introduced. Uh, and, and the bylaw that they have was presented before I came there. This is a bylaws from the last administration. Do, so, so, but you don't, you don't have a, a, an opinion about what would be fair regarding the caucuses. Um, you know, well, it would be based on numbers. It will be based on the voting percentages in the and they are in the electorate, but the bylaws were skewed just for the public information to reduce the vote of blacks in the party. That's why it was it was a power struggle. Blacks in Alabama uh, negotiated our voting uh, representation based on our voting participation due to the race history of racism in Alabama with the Federal Justice Department. And if you check that, you will find that is true. But they had reduced the number of blacks on that committee to keep blacks from becoming uh, coming into a power in that spe- on that specific committee. And of course, one a professional said that we are seventy one percent of the party, voters of the party. So it's a matter of numbers. It's a power struggle. And um, you can't hold down a black person that's not voting Democrat. Mm. Uh, you wouldn't have a Democratic Party if it wasn't a black folk. Right. Th- certainly. Uh, one one common criticism of, of the party from some of their some of its own voters has been been a lack of presence uh, since August since you took over. Um, you know, absence from the conversation in the media on social e- uh, media or in people's email inboxes. You know, I think that. Uh, I think that there are a lot of criticisms that I would have of the last administration. Uh, I think having 15 people full-time on payroll for years, I don't think that we saw 
I, I frankly, uh, you know, I don't think that we saw the benefits of that. The people of Alabama, working people of Alabama, I don't think that we saw the benefits of having 15 full-time staffers for the Democratic Party. Um, but one thing that they did was uh, they had an active social media presence. They sent emails fairly regularly. Um, and since taking office, all, that has uh, come to a, to a screeching halt. I don't believe that the party has posted anything on social media since then. I don't think that there, I don't think there's been any press releases or anything like that, any press conferences. Um, so, you know, uh, wh- why is that? Do you think that that's, do you think that that's good? Do you think, you know, do you, are, are you like, is that a purposeful step to take a step back from the public eye while you regroup or, um, you know, do you not think that Democrats should be out there right now, or you know, just what, what is your what is your response to the criticism of of the party being absent? I think the social media is um, issue is relevant, and I'm all for that. But they had staff people for that, and I just got through telling you we have a skeleton crew right now as far as staff is concerned, and we're in the, we don't even have an executive director. So we're in the process of, of trying to hire some people, but you they're not gonna uh, uh, work for peanuts. And if you give them peanuts, you're not gonna get anything but monkeys. Mm. So that takes time to hire a good staff because it's um, uh, easier to hire than it is to hire somebody and fire them. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're taking our time. Like I say, in, in, in the short period of time I have, I, I couldn't have done what they expect and the expectation for me. And I don't mind criticism. I love criticism because uh, being in leadership for a long time, uh, you get immune to criticism. But I love criticism and I love feedback. And everybody that has called me that I know of, I have responded to them. And I, you know, I, I think that's a good attitude to have to criticism. There have been some people that have volunteered to to run the accounts on a on a volunteer basis. I, I do think, I think that Eisner is one of the people that that did. I think that there's been other people on the executive committee that have been willing to run it on a volunteer basis. Um, and it is is your opinion that that the social media accounts should just that sh- they just should be run by by full time staff as opposed to volunteers? Well, we we will let the we will decide who's the best person to run that. And um, I um, am not comfortable with Eisner running that. She's she got up a position as vice chair, and because I've seen some of the stuff that she's sent. And let me share another thing about Miss Eisner: is uh, she ran for chair in the last administration. She lost chair, and from my understanding, she fell out in the floor and started screaming. And 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 I'm not saying that uh, just to say that. This is what they tell me. So I'm really concerned about who operates the social media because you're sending messages out from the party, and we're trying to put the party in the best light and the best image. I I, I think that that. That's certainly important to that's that's a that's a a talk that I've had with people about union Twitter accounts actually about social media discipline <laughs> that, that you know I think that's important. Um, yeah, I'm not. And, gonna, and I'm, gonna, I'm not. I'm not going to let one of the toddlers of my church uh, drive me to Washington D.C. Fly me to Washington D.C. in an airplane. 
And even though I, I love that ham sandwich out of children. Mm. So we want the right person in social media. We want the right person as the executive director of the park. So, you know, we talked about candidate recruitment. There were candidates uh, that in, in some of the races. Do you feel like those candidates across the state got the support and the guidance that they needed from the state party um, before you were elected and then after you were elected? You know, I don't I don't I you know, I, I don't know if you can comment about the support that they received before, but but you can certainly comment uh, to the extent that they received support after. Uh, do you feel like they got the guidance and the support that they needed from the state party to be able to run successful campaigns? Well, they got the guidance, those that asked me the best guidance that I could give them. And also, I personally hosted forums so that the public could be informed about what they stood for, make sure they were visible. And a lot of them came to my church, even liber libertarians came here. Mm. And uh, we provided platforms for them. And so I don't know of anything else that we could have done for them. Now, as far as finances is concerned, and they Democratic Party, you have two funds. You have a federal fund and a non-federal fund. Uh, a fund. The federal fund basically is used for salaries, but non-federal is flexible. And what we did with the non-federal, uh, some of that is we helped with ballots, guide ballots. And the reason for that uh, the Alabama Democratic Conference is in all 67 of Alabama counties. And folks, a lot of them will not vote because they've been conditioned and, and they've trusted in the leaders in those specific areas to vote by that ballot. And we encouraged all of them to vote straight Democrat. And if the truth is known, that many of them got as many votes as they did because they voted straight Democrat. I think that, you know, you you spoke about, you know, some of some of your plans to build a build a working class majority uh, hitting some of these some of these issues where Republicans are clearly, clearly out of step with the average working Alabamian wanting to cut Social Security, wanting to cut Medicaid, wanting to uh, cut taxes for the rich while continuing, you know, grocery taxes on the poor. You know, I think that these are all, you know, I, I don't think that you mentioned that last one, but I feel comfortable, you know, uh, I think that that's, it's a safe assumption that you hold the position that, that you know, the grocery taxes is, is wrong as well. But, you know, l shifting to, as a, as a union radio show, shifting to, shifting to the Democrat Party's orientation to labor, um, and, let, and let me take this before you get off late. I'm a former union representative. I worked for Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company. Okay. And also, I work now with a group that's organizing unions. And uh, we have uh, periodic Zoom calls. So I'm very much pro union. Well, that is, I, you know, to hear. That, that, that's good to hear. And, and so, are we going to see, you know, under Randy Kelly's Democratic Party, are we going to see, um, you know, a recommitment to organized labor with with a real intention to support unions, those who are organizing unions and, and stuff like that? You know, I mean, we've seen several big labor actions going on in the state right now. Coal miners are on strike. Paper mill workers are locked out. Starbucks and Amazon workers are organizing unions. Longshore workers got near a strike down in Mobile. And, and all of that is actually... That has all been since you've been chair, right? So we've got a lot of stuff happening right now. So 
what have what have you and the party been doing to support these workers and and uh, since you've become chair and what is your plan to support these workers moving forward oh well i had no connection with them uh none of them had, had contacted me about it i intend at least of all develop a relationship with them uh we have uh, daryl turner's son who was an official in the uh, labor union he's over that uh, for the Democratic Party. And I think he's gonna play a, a great role in working with those unions, but any way that I can help them, I'm certainly gonna do that. In fact, I have uh, worked to try to organize unions and hospitals and plants and, and everywhere else. Yeah, in fact, if it wasn't for the union, I wouldn't be getting a retirement check from uh, a good year rubber company. And we wouldn't be getting the wages that we, ha we have. And the benefits, the health benefits, and all these things. So yeah, I'm 100% uh, behind the union. But a lot of times, you know, you, it, it's a matter of, uh, uh, you know, working together, networking. And uh, of course, I know you do understand. We have a lot of uh, things that we're a challenge with, particularly as uh, as the chair. Many things to do, and uh, so, but but. Uh, if uh, I can assist in any way in anything, I certainly will. Do you right have now we're working with uh, education, educators in the school. Uh, I uh, had a meeting here at this church with uh, some people from the uh, desegregation advisory committee. So we're going to be working with the educators and building bridges there. And uh, what, as I was sharing, I'm not going to be able to do it. I wouldn't didn't think I was going to do anything miraculous within the short period of time that I was in there. And even in that one no time, it was 14 days before I was over 14 days before I was even able to get in the office hmm. because we had a employee that had uh, COVID. Hmm. So, uh, so, uh, yeah, my one no time has, has not been a long time to deal with. Mm -hmm. And then trying to put a put together convention and multiple other things and meetings. Uh, so but then, but then too, a lot of things that I'm doing now, I wouldn't have to do if we, you know, have the staff in place, had the staff in place. So we'll be we're going to be wrapping up here, and so I, I just want to alert uh, folks. I've I've tried to folks that are that are listening in the YouTube chat. I've tried to. Uh, incorporate most of your questions in, into our conversation, but if there's anything that you feel that ha really hasn't been asked, uh, then then now's the time to to put a question in the, ch in the chat for uh, for Reverend Kelly. And um, and and so you know, as some of the last couple of questions, uh, sixty some odd percent of of Alabamians didn't vote last week. What is your message to those folks? Well. That, that's a, a, a hard problem. I don't know why they're not voting. I guess uh, they're not really seeing a return for the vote. I think we got to work both sides of the street. Not only are we going to have to work to build our party, but even those whom we have elected, we need to keep them accountable for our community. And a lot of times, people elect people and they don't see them again to four more years when they come and give them a chicken dinner or something to vote for them and what have you. 
But in the meantime, we got to have some community forums and bring these people in and make them accountable. When I was elected official, I had district meetings where I would come in the district and keep people informed. And here I've seen that noticeably absent, particularly in North Alabama. And that's something that we got to get back to. We got to have some accountability. And uh, if folks do want to get involved, what can they do? How should they do it? What kind of volunteer needs does the party have? Does the party conduct, facilitate trainings online, in person, stuff like that? If, like if there are people that are out there and, and, and that are listening that do want to lend time and money to the party, where do they need to go? Well, they could call me. Call me or contact the secretary of the party and I could give my number. Uh, you, you have my number. Uh, or either call the office and my secretary will give it, give that information to us. Okay, we got a couple more questions in, in the chat. Um, and uh, how does how does Chair Kelly intend to support the youth? As he said, it's important for recruitment. Um, will uh, will he accept our email list of youth members and communicate with us? Uh, this is presumably from somebody involved in the youth caucus. I would love to. I would love to. I'm very uh, passionate uh, about working with young people and any way I can help them. And then also, I'm concerned about uh, not followers, but leaders, making leaders, empowering them. And you said something that I share quite a bit, but in a different way. I believe in having a dialogue rather than a monologue. Mm. I want to hear what they have to say. And my job is to empower them and make them successful and make them visible. Uh, that's 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 what I see my role is in empowering others. I think good leaders make other leaders, and I try my best to to do that. If they don't have access to the party website slash socials, are they setting up parallel structures like a new website, new social media, or is there still effort to get uh, to get those passwords or something? It's good efforts to get the password. We got some folks working on it, but I have called the. Uh, the associate regional chair. I thought he was gonna come up with it, but he was unable to do it. Oh, we still got some people working on it. But that's a DNC website. That's not mm. um, just an ordinary, everyday root of poop website. Gotcha. If it was, we would have been changed. Gotcha. All right. Well, Adam, do you have any other questions for uh, for the chairman? I uh, just wanted to ask if you had any parting words uh, as we close this conversation. My parting words is I, I thank you for inviting me and both of you have good radio personalities and I have the Georgia questions and I, and I basically wish we had more interaction from the listeners because I kind of um, feed on that uh, feedback. Uh, and I'm energized by it. So, uh, but you can invite me anytime. I'd be happy to come on and deal with whatever topic you want me to deal with. We'll hold Appreciate you to it. that now. We'll hold yeah. you to it. <laughs> uh, I have your I have your number, so I'll I'll give you a call if, if uh, we want to bring you on. So Absolutely. thank you, thank you. I appreciate. We have it. a vacancy for a talk show host there. Just just put me on the waiting list. All right. Sounds when good. Jacob kicks me off the air, I'll yeah. uh, <laughs> we'll call you. Up. I, don't have, I don't have any education, no experience, a good reputation, but but I want to be treated fairly like everybody else. All right. Gotcha. Well, thanks for your time. Thanks for your time. I appreciate it. 
So let's talk about this. This is kind of the elephant in the room here. Um, that is the latest from the Warrior Met Strike. Uh, probably, you know, one of the biggest stories for us here in our neck of the woods in a while. Um, and the news is that the UMWA, the, uh, the United Mine Workers of America, has sent an offer of unconditional return to work to Warrior Met Cole. Um, and I've got a lot to say about it, and I have a lot of thoughts, um, and I have a lot of feelings. I have lots of feelings. Um, and, you know, I don't know even how to say all of it necessarily, uh, but so, you know, I figured the best thing to do is just kind of start with some of the mechanics and logistics as far as we know and, and talk about what's next for the miners. Uh, we're going to do... Uh, a little bit of how this happened, uh, a little bit of recap, and a little bit of of how this happened. How it how it is that the union has uh, felt like they have the union feels like they've been pushed into a situation where it is necessary to conduct a um, you know what is uh, I think most optimistically described as a tactical retreat. Um, I think that would be the most optimistic way you could describe that. So. So an unconditional return to work. What does that mean? Well, a uh, friend of the show, Luis Felice Leon, shared an old Labor Notes article from 2006 by Robert Schwartz titled Returning to Work with an Inside Campaign uh, that I think is, is really helpful in figuring out like mechanically and logistically what, uh, what the law says and, 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 and what the state of play is uh, at, uh, at, at the moment. And so reading from this article, after an unconditional return to work, it is actually illegal to hire permanent replacements or to award permanent status to temporaries after the offer is received. Um, there are only two lawful responses to a union return to work offer. That is acceptance or lockout. Any other response starts the back pay check clock for each striker entitled to reinstatement. If the employer accepts the offer, it must set a prompt reporting date for strikers whose positions are vacant or filled by temporaries. In an unfair labor practice strike, it also must displace permanent replacements, but this almost always requires an LRB intervention. If the employer initiates a lockout, Either immediately or as a reaction to the union's inside activities, the employer will face several problems. One, it will not be able to hire additional permanent replacements. And two, if the employer has committed ULPs, unfair labor practices, such as making unilateral changes, insisting on non-mandatory bargaining subjects, or refusing to supply the union with relevant information, the NLRB can declare the lockout illegal and order the employer to re state workers with back wages. When strikers return to work under an unconditional offer, the employer must resume the wages, benefits, and privileges in the expired collective bargaining agreement except for changes that the employer has lawfully imposed after a bargaining impasse. So, <clears throat> so that's some interesting stuff there. Um, and I definitely trust the legal analysis of Robert Schwartz. He's he's a very good, um, very good resource. Again, that article is a 2006 article from Labor Notes titled "Returning to Work with an Inside Campaign." Um, and we also know that this is an unfair labor practice to strike at Warrior Met Coal, uh, meaning that 
uh, while the workers do have, you know, economic bargaining concerns, right, the strike is legally built on illegal actions by the company, such as bad faith bargaining. And when workers, uh, when workers strike in response to violation of labor law, as opposed to striking strictly over economics, their jobs are protected, meaning that they may not be permanently, permanently replaced. Um, under, under, you know, a, a conservative originalist reading of the National Labor Relations Act, their jobs would always be protected when they go out on strike uh, because they, <laughs> the National Labor Relations Act prohibits you from firing workers for striking. But, uh, you know, activists, conservatives activist conservative judges on the judiciary have created out of whole cloth what is uh, uh, what is termed the McKay Doctrine, which states that you can permanently replace striking workers, which is somehow different than firing them. Legal fiction. Completely legal fiction. Um, Warrior Met hasn't responded yet, which is a bit eerie for me. Um, and, 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 you know, we don't know what tack they're going to take, but we'll definitely keep you updated. We'll talk about, we'll talk about this. I'm presumably, presumably Warrior Met is going to respond by next week. And so we'll, we'll tell you what, uh, we'll give you the updates next week. Um, and, you know, I, uh, I, I don't understand, um, you know, it, it, it's just, really really uh you know it, it's a really really sad situation and and you know there there are some folks in the chat that are saying you know our leaders we surrender and you know at there are times that a surrender is the best option right i mean there are times when there's just not anything else you can do um your employer is too powerful of an opponent at the time and the best thing for the workers is for them to be able to get back on the job and and be able to earn a paycheck and prepare for the next battle right um you know you don't working people you know uh connor lewis uh, mentioned on twitter that that you know sometimes working people lose right so working people fight and sometimes we lose and and that's just what happens and so um the decision at this point the decision at this point to return to work I'm not necessarily prepared to to totally condemn um, as a betrayal of the strike, just because uh, you know, because some you know sometimes you lose and and you know it's you, you need to I, I you know I guess need to know when to when to fold I guess right. Even well, though it's sad, right? It's sad, and and maybe it's not the best decision. Maybe you know, I'm open to I'm open to saying that that it's not the best decision, and there were other ways, and there were there were ways that they could have made the strike effective while people were out on strike. You know, I'm open to that, but but I don't know that it's you know I don't know that it's a just just a total you know to return to work. I I don't know that that's a total betrayal, right? Well, as you mentioned earlier, I think. You could describe this as a tactical retreat, and you laid out um, some of the some of the options uh, that could come into play, depending on how um, Warrior Met responds. Mm -hmm. Right, this could transition to a lockout, which would you know change the nature of the fight. Um, but yeah, I, I want to echo your comments there that you know right now on February eighteenth. Can I say, you know, 100% how I feel about um, 
these decisions? No, I can't. Uh, I imagine people with uh, more experience than me and greater wisdom than me in this labor movement will have plenty of hot takes and analysis and, you know, uh, debriefs on this. Um, you know, I'm not a member of UMWA. I'm not a coal miner. So I am just speaking as someone from the outside who has nothing but love and solidarity for these sisters and brothers and respect for, you know, what has been a righteous struggle uh, against very, very long odds uh, for quite a long time now. So I know yeah. you're going to get a little bit into the, the background of how we how we got to this point and, and why this strike occurred in the first place. But, uh, yeah, I wanted to, to mention that, that, mm-hmm. you know, there's there's plenty of room for debate on strategy and tactics. And I think as uh, members of this labor movement, we should be able to do that. Uh, right. With with some respect uh, for each other and an understanding that we're not always going to agree. Uh, but mm-hmm. if we're if we're all in this for working people, you know, we're right. going to have to make tough decisions <clears throat> and they're not always going to work. Right. Uh, and that's just, you know, some of my initial thoughts there before we we dive back into the background. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, David asked in the chat, has the NLRB actually ruled that a ULP has taken place or has the is the UMWA just claiming that? And I'm not totally sure, but they've always, the UMWA has always maintained that this is a ULP strike. So at least we can say that the NLRB has not said that a ULP has not taken place. Right, because warrior, uh, because UMWA wouldn't be able to claim that this is a ULP strike if if the NLRB had had shot that down. So right, um, so it's at least still an open question. And Warrior Matt has not announced a plan to make these people permanent re- replacements. Right, I mean, there's never been any there. There's never been any indication from Warrior Matt any any press release or anything saying that okay we're going to begin permanently replacing these people. So so I mean as I understand it these people have always been temporary replacements and they and so then at the time that that letter was received these people should theoretically be able to get back to work. Um you know the 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 letter was for them to be um will be able uh the letter the letter was saying that they'll return to work on the 2nd of March the 2nd of March um and so uh so you know theoretically you know these people are going to be able to get back to work um as they continue to negotiate uh, uh as, as they continue negotiations for the contract so um and uh and you know somebody else mentioned in the chat um I'm ambivalent on this. Maybe the material conditions with the ranking file has reached a breaking point. Maybe that's the case. Um, I do know that that there there wasn't a vote taken uh, to to send this, and I think that's a mistake. Um, I would I would disagree with that. I would think that the people on strike should be able to vote on whether or not they want to continue the strike. And if they want to continue the strike, then then it seems to me that they would that there would necessitate like a, a need to change the strategy somehow, somehow. Right. Um, and then somebody else in the chat says, uh, every union buster will talk about that 23 month strike that accomplished nothing. And yeah, definitely. You know, that's, um, that's the, uh, you know, I mean, and that's the case. And, and like I said, you know, like I said, uh, sometimes working people lose, sometimes a righteous fight is lost and that's just, 
that's just the the way of of the world, right? And but the but that working people lost this fight um does not mean that working people shouldn't fight because we can also look and see the fights that working people have won and we can also see the righteousness of their fight and we can see ways that it could have that it could have turned out differently and we'll just talk about you know how a lot of this is just happenstance because of the market and we'll get into that later um but uh, but yeah, somebody else replied. Union busters will say anything at all. And to be honest, Southern fossil fuel union workers are not mentioned much at all by union busters, especially in retail union fights. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, although yeah, these like are not it. fossil fuel workers, but understand the point. Um, and uh, um, you know, David also mentioned in the chat that uh, you know a surrender was the best option three months in. And you know, maybe, maybe that that's the critique is that they just that that you know that this this just went on too long and there wasn't enough, you know, you know, that, that there, there wasn't enough analysis about, do we have, do we have the power to win this struggle? Right. You know, that, yeah. That's, what was the theory of change? Right. Um, um, initially, what was the theory of change within, you know, three months in? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot of those, those questions that are, I think are, are fair to ask and are going to be asked by, you know, the members as well as, as allies and supporters. Yeah. And, um, David also replies to the to the fellow saying that you know everybody's going to be talking about the twenty three month strike that accomplished nothing. Um, David says you know we did the same thing in ninety five for a three month strike and we and we still hear about it today. Uh, you know we did the same thing. We returned to work unconditionally after a three month strike and and like this didn't win anything and we still hear about it today. It's important to be honest early and that's the failure of leadership and planning. Um, I think that makes sense. So. We also wanted to remind folks, you know, that it's the case, it is just the case that Warrior Met caused the strike, right? That's that's just the fact of the matter. Um, this has been going on so long, and in many of the updates, you know, you don't get the full background, um, and that's all understandable, and we're not even going to go be, a be able to go into everything um, now, but... You know, the big picture is that in 2015, Walter Energy, which is what this company was called back then, they went bankrupt. And as the UMWA president, Cecil Roberts, said in a testimony before Congress, he reminded folks that it was the people at the top of the company that made the decisions that caused the bankruptcy more than anybody else. You know, nobody asks coal miners about how to make investment decisions. Nobody asks coal miners about priorities for the business. Nobody asks coal miners even whether they ought to hire more coal miners, right? You know, one of the things that people will say, and and, and I don't, I, I'm not convinced that this is the case here, but one of the things that people will say is, oh, well, they got too greedy and there's too, too many people making too much money. They don't even get that decision. It's the decision of the bosses whether they hire more people or not, right? That's the whole thing. And yet, when Walter Energy went bankrupt, it was the miners who were temporarily out of work. The leeches at the top stayed rich. And this is made all the more insidious because there's every reason to believe that this bankruptcy, like so many in the coal industry, was not the unfortunate result of 
decisions made in good faith by enterprising businessmen. But a purposeful decision meant to shed them of their obligations to the workers, which is what happened. Because basically, after Walter Energy went bankrupt, magically, because of the bankruptcy laws in this country that were the subject of the hearing in D.C., where Tommy Tupperville read from company press releases, because of the bankruptcy laws, Walter Energy no longer had a legal obligation to continue paying retirement or anything at all to the former employees. They had no obligation to negotiate with the union that the workers had voted for. They had no obligation to do anything. Somehow, just by magic, all of their obligations disappear, right? All of their obligations to people who sacrificed their entire life to the company. 60, 70, 80-year-old people who spent 30, 40, 50 years in the mines. They're not owed anything. Magic. It's all gone. And while the leeches kept their uh, spot at the top, sucking the value out of the people that, you know, that actually do the work, right? I mean, in the most literal sense of the word, the CEO of Warrior Met is the same as uh, the CEO of Walter Energy, Walter Scheller. Many of the board members are the same too. The people who, under the, you know, the capitalist idea of bankruptcy, the people who made the wrong decisions, they're still at the top. They haven't faced any, they haven't faced any repercussions, professional, personal, financial, anything for sending this company into bankruptcy. And so in, in order to save the retirees' pensions and in order to maintain the representation status of the union and in order to save the company from the in all likelihood, purposeful destruction of its profitability by Walter Scheller, the workers took huge concessions in 2016. They took a $6 an hour pay cut. They took a 20% cut to their uh, health care. They took retirement cuts. They accepted more stringent attendance requirements. Requirements that are so stringent that if you are late to work four times, you lose your job. And that's whether or not anything reasonable happens. You get in a car crash, somebody wrecks into you, a drunk driver wrecks you. That's one of your absences. Hope it doesn't happen three more times in the year. Hope you don't have three more times in a whole year where something happens and you're late to work. Otherwise, you might be out of a job. That's one of the things that they accepted. Mandatory overtime. People working six, seven-day weeks, 12 hours a day. These are the things that they accepted that workers sacrificed to save the company. While the people at the top actually responsible for the decisions got raises, made more money, Millions of dollars a year. These freaks in the board offices kept their jobs. And as far as I can tell, no sacrifices. Nothing. Nada. 
And so in 2021, five years later, when the contract expires, the workers wanted to get back what they gave up to save the company. They said, look, the company's profitable. We did our part. We saved you. Now we want what we gave up back. We at least want some improvements from where we are. We don't, we can't take more concessions. How can you possibly expect workers to take less in an environment where their company is making record profits, where the CEO is getting huge raises? How can you expect workers to accept that? But that's what Warrior Matt expected them to do. They put a contract on the table with more concessions, including an effective pay cut with a dollar an hour, which was a dollar an hour raise over the term of the contract, which was four or five years. A dollar an hour over the life of the contract. And so the workers decided to strike. They voted down the contract by more than 95%. And the company hasn't come back with a single offer any different than the first one. And it's not because they can't afford it. They've explicitly said as much during bargaining sessions. And they're giving the scabs $2,000 a month more than they're offering the union. So they clearly have money to be able to move in their position. They're just not. So, you know, like, which how is that not bad faith bargaining, right? Yeah, there, there again, which I know this is a theme of this struggle is is the broken labor laws in this country. Yeah, it's just absolutely insane. So, you know, I mean, look, the fight is clearly is clearly a righteous one. There are unambiguous good guys, coal miners who work who produce something of value, who produce something that makes the world better. And then there are unambiguous bad guys. Leeches who do nothing but own. I mean, you know, some people have this, 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 this conception of business owners and, oh, they produce and they, they work too, just as hard as the workers do. And, you know, some bosses work. Some bosses perform labor. Sure, I guess. But what do these people do? They just decide where to put money. It's nonsense. And they're asking these people to give up money. Well, they take more. Unambiguous good guys and unambiguous bad guys. And sometimes, sometimes the bad guys win, right? Sometimes the bad guys win. Um, Hayden is in the, Hayden's in the chat. Good morning, brothers and sisters. Thank you all for the support, uh, for us during the struggle. Um, we appreciate, honored to be able to support. Um, I will say from Hayden, I will say, I don't think the strike was for nothing. I hope we showed other workers not to be afraid to strike, not to be afraid to speak out against companies and equity groups exploiting them. Uh, David replied, uh, agreed. We have to fight and we have to know when to stop. If we don't fight, we've already lost. Uh, that's, that's definitely exactly, exactly right. Um, so, you know, yeah, Warrior and, Matt and has yet to, 
even meet in person after requests to do so, some for a year. I mean, that's just how is that not bad faith? You know, I mean, right, it's just right, it's absolutely, totally ridiculous. Yeah, and I appreciate Hayden uh, chiming in, and uh, I would agree with that assessment. You know, it's easy to, on the sidelines, say it was off or not, um, but you know, what was the alternative? Right. And if and what I know we're going to talk about later in the show, um, some of the commentary we've seen. And, you know, it's clear that there are some people who think that basically you should just lay down and take it. Right. Right. Any fight is is futile. Right. Uh, you should just accept what the elites and the bosses and the powerful do. You should accept it uh, and just move on and not try to fight back and not try to resist. And, yeah. you know, for me, that's never an acceptable answer. Right. Um, I. That's not to say that every fight is is a winner. That's not to say that every fight is even strategically wise, you know, and that's separate from this particular context, but in general. Right. But, right. Um, you know, I think those of us who care about working people realize that the only way we've ever made life better in this country or around the world for working people is when we join together mm -hmm. and when we organize and we build solidarity and we're able to fight back against yeah those in power so uh i have tremendous respect for all of the members who have been in this strike uh and not just the members but their families who have sacrificed uh and it you know i do hope that there are, are some positive things that come out of this separate from the contract uh, mm -hmm. i think something we've talked about a lot on the show is the ways in which shared struggle can really build new relationships, change dynamics, you know, within communities. And so, you know, I think that's probably one of the things that's going to be reflected on, you know, in the days and, and weeks and months ahead is uh, the amount of solidarity that did take place. Yeah. And um, yeah, definitely. You know, um, I think that's something that we also shouldn't forget is that, for how much more could have been done, should have been done. Uh, and, you know, I have some pretty uh, harsh feelings as well for some, some folks uh, at, you know, the top of this administration at the White House. And, um, yeah. you know, we could get into all that. But, you know, separate from that, um, there were a lot of people around the country and around the world who were supportive of this struggle and are still supportive of this struggle mm -hmm. who have contributed financially, who have contributed their time, who have, you know, spread the word. Um, and I, I hope that as these, you know, 20, what, 23, 22 months have, have just simmered on, I hope that the, the brothers and sisters down there have seen that and, and heard that, that solidarity. And I hope that it gave some, uh, some resolve to keep going. Yeah. Uh, you know, you and I heard from a brother in, in the United Kingdom mm -hmm. who f was getting beat by Mar Maggie who, Thatcher's riot yeah. cops in, in the 80s. Who said he would have been here if it wasn't for, uh, you know... Him he's not allowed been, to leave the yeah, country. he's not allowed to leave still. the country. Still uh, because of that strike. Yeah. Right. I mean, and so, you know, I think, uh, I think back to the Strike Fest event and the you know like motley crew of folks that were there you know just the the very interesting uh 
assortment of folks who were there. And uh, I think those were glimpses of what we can be at our best when we are able to come across, cut across divisions and other barriers to join hands as working people for a righteous cause. Yeah. And, uh, you know, infinite content in the chat says sometimes a loss inspires others to take up the cause and get the long term victory. And, and that's definitely right. Um, so, you yeah. know, and I guess the, ne the next obvious the, the obvious question is, you know, how did this happen? How is it that, you know, at, at the very least, the most optimistic thing, you know, the good guys have been forced into an optimi into a tactical retreat and retreat. And, you know, well, unlike um, unlike what, you know, free market freaks are going to tell you. Negotiations are not nearly as much about your worth um, as the power and the money you have on your side. And Warrior Met had a lot of it, as well as some good fortune. And I think the the latter, the good fortune, is really, you know, really a key thing to their uh, to the way that they've been able to hold out during this strike. And and that's that, um, you know, they have not felt the pinch that they might have felt otherwise because of the price of steel. You know, just a reminder, this is metallurgical coal, right? This is used in the production of steel. It is not energy coal. And so it is, you know, directly tied to steel prices. Steel prices have skyrocketed, which has allowed them to record profits, even profits as much as before the strike, I think, um, which is, which is uh, you know, just insane because you can you know you can look at, at their financial reports and see that they are producing less than they used to right they're producing less than they used to but they're making more profits i think you know they're only producing i don't what is it 30 40 percent of what they used to you know it's like a fraction of of what they did when they were at 100 percent capacity running with union coal miners and yet they're making higher profits. And the reason for that is not because, you know, some magic property of coal that was mined by scabs makes it more valuable. No, obviously not. It's because of the price of coal or the price of metallurgical coal. The price of steel has gone up, skyrocketed. Um, and, and so even though it is the case, it is factually the case that they've lost over a billion dollars in unrealized revenue because of the strike, uh, which is a lot of money. They haven't actually gone into debt for it. They haven't actually lost any money, um, which makes it difficult for them to move. Now, a purely like somebody just motivated by making money, like BlackRock, you know, they may say, well, you need to end the strike. And they did say you need to end the strike uh, because look at all this money that we're losing. But if somebody can be contented with making millions of dollars instead of, you know, tens of millions of dollars, as long as they can put these uppity workers in their place, right, then that's what Warrior Matt seemed to to be interested in doing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's something that came out loud and clear throughout the struggle is that Warrior Matt was more interested in power and more interested in the ability to squash their workforce and to bust the union than they were just pure profits, right? I mean, the bottom line dollar amounts were not as important as the power. And that's not necessarily unique to Warrior Met. Uh, unfortunately, it's been particularly egregious with them. And, you know, they are a case study in mm -hmm. corporate greed run amok in this country 
and what it's doing to communities across this country. Yeah. And also, obviously, the law. The law is stacked against workers. Um, and, right. and one and, of, and I'm sorry, before no, you yeah, get yeah. into the law, uh, I did want to make sure we mentioned like and maybe you said this and I, I didn't hear you. But, you know, the metallurgical coal and the steel prices going up uh, in some cases is connected to the broader like energy crisis mm, in, mm-hmm. in Europe and across the world. And, you know, <laughs> the miners couldn't predict that there was going to be war in Ukraine when it happened uh and the way that has played out in right. the industry and how that has had ripple effects on into um into met coal and mm-hmm. um you know because it's the war it's the sanctions connected to the war all of that has really disrupted the marketplace right and so yeah warrior met has gotten lucky basically yeah. they they got lucky that yeah. the timing on this just happened to coincide with a spike in prices for them. Right. Uh, so, that's, yeah, the material factors here just made it that much harder. And so, yeah, obviously another one of the factors that, that, that has led to this is the law. The law is stacked against working people. And one of the most obvious things is that uh, workers are not allowed to conduct mass pickets anymore. Mass pickets that prohibit uh scabs from entering the mine uh that that limit that that uh eliminate production mass pickets that make production impossible are illegal they used to be legal they used to be legal in this country but now they're illegal and we talked about the whole history of how mass picketing was made illegal but it's illegal now and and you know people will say people will say that's fine they'll say that's fine because uh, because the the, the 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 coal company has these property rights to you know and so they should be able to do whatever right and that's just that's so I can't understand the thinking about that like how do you gymnast your way flip into this mindset that allows out of state billionaire investment groups, to have more control over our resources than we do. Why shouldn't folks who dedicate their entire life, who have dedicated their entire lives to these mines, why should they not be able to stand at the gate and say, no, you know, you can't mine this coal without agreeing to what we're asking for you can't you just can't do it you can't do it i'm an alabamian these are my minds i've spent 30 50 years in here my granddaddy mined these mines no you can't if if we're not going down there nobody can why shouldn't alabamians have that right just because somebody has money? It's nonsense. It's totally insane. It's a totally insane way of thinking to allow these people, just because they have money, to screw over our people and tell us how we are going to mine the coal. It's insane. Totally insane. And then... 
even if we say, even if we say, okay, look, it's illegal. It's illegal to mass picket. That's one thing, but it's another to have completely unreasonable penalties for breaking the law. You know, because sometimes, sometimes you can look at the law and you say, you know, look, it's worth breaking the law. You know, I'm will and I'm willing to take punishment for it. I'm willing to sit in jail for a few days. I'm willing to pay this small fine. Companies do this all the time. The law has been structured in such a way that when companies break the law, they do break the law as a matter of business and say, oh, well, you know, look, the fine was only $20,000 uh, and I'm going to be able to make, you know, $10 million in profit off of this. That's fine. I'll break the law and I'll pay the fine. Working people can't do that because we've had, they had injunctions placed on them that would make, put them in jail for years, give them felony charges and may, and, and have fines of $300,000 on people who break the injunction just completely unreasonable i mean totally unreasonable standard. totally unreasonable and even and the injunctions don't even it's not even like the injunction are like oh you can't mass picket you can't prevent people from 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 coming into the mines the injunctions said no picketing right no picketing you can't at have, all for months you can't have a dozen people you can't have, there was, there was like two or three months where you couldn't have anybody. It was illegal. You would have faced a fine of hundreds of thousands of dollars and jail time and a felony charge if you stood silently at the side of the road with a sign as scabs walked in and took your job. That's insane. That's insane. The law is broken. The law is broken. And then we've got our politicians who are going even above and beyond the law. Now, these same Just, politicians who want you to love the Constitution, right? Love the, the Constitution. The same Constitution that is supposed to guarantee you the right to freedom of assembly and freedom of speech. Right, right. You know, we've got, we, we've got these politicians who are going above and beyond the law to support the company. You've got Kay Ivey, who is allowing her state troopers with, you know, with our tax dollars, right? Our, the public's money, theoretically, these people, theoretically, these people running around, you know, with the license to kill, acting like they own the place, theoretically, they work for us, uh, you know, in some ultimate sense. They work for Alabamians, not for out-of-state international private equity groups, theoretically. But this strike showed that that's not the case. That's not the case. They do work for these international private equity firms, right? Because they were giving scabs emergency escorts. They were speeding these scabs, breaking the law to get these scabs to work faster. And, and when coal miners said, okay, we have an issue with that. We have an issue with that. We have an issue with you breaking the speed limit in our communities to get these dirty, rotten scabs to work. We've got an issue with that. We've got, and so what we're going to do, we're going to get in front of these scabs escort, scab escorts and just go the speed limit. We're just going to go the speed limit. I mean, how mild, how mild of a response. I'm just going to go the speed limit 
and they got tickets. They got tickets. They were ticketed by enforcers of the law for going the speed limit in front of an emergency escort. Wicked, evil, evil, these people. I, it's just bizarre. And KIV allowed that to happen. And we saw from Tim James's gubernatorial run that, you know, there are things within the law that the uh, that a governor could do to support these workers. The governor has the ability to utilize state safety and environmental agencies to investigate the mines, right? And we've seen these scabs pollute the Warrior River near this mine. That didn't happen before the scabs came in. This river's at multiple times turned black in places. Scabs have been uh, <laughs> scabs have been carried out in ambulances and helicopters because they messed up and hurt themselves. No safety investigations, no environmental investigations, nothing from the governor, as these scabs are polluting our rivers and hurting themselves doing it. Nothing, no pressure from the governor on the company. In Tuberville, of course, staying silent, reading from company press releases as a Vermont senator, as a, a senator from Vermont, with, of all the people in this story, Bernie Sanders has the clearest way to say, this isn't my fight. This isn't, you know, this is happening all the way, literally, literally across the country from me, from Vermont to Alabama. And he brings these people up to testify Alabama coal miners to testify and Tupperville reads from this international private equity firm's press release and Joe Biden and Marty Walsh supposedly the most pro-labor administration in the history of the United States nothing nothing and I even saw Marty Walsh down here in Birmingham when he was touting the administration's infrastructure law, you know, whatever, I saw UMWA officials come up to him and talk to him. Ask him for support personally. Personally, I saw that happen in front of my eyes and nothing. I mean, lizard people, these people, they're all, they're all lizard people. I mean, I just, I don't know how to explain it. It's just, I mean, I don't know. Uh, and, you know, of course, I also think that even within the bounds of the law, there was more that the union could have done. I mean, I think that there should have been more to engage the rail unions, you know, uh, uh, the rails for uh, taking the scab coal, because I've been convinced that the Railway Labor Act allows for secondary strikes. I've been convinced uh, uh, of that. And... Uh, and it doesn't seem like there was, it, it, there was certainly not any attempt to put public pressure on the international leadership of these rail unions to do more to support the strike. And I think that it just seems, that seems weird to me. You know, like if, if there were public calls to the Teamster president, Sean O'Brien, to do something about this, uh, who, the, you know, the Teamsters are... Uh, who the international union that the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen are affiliated with, I don't see how Sean O'Brien couldn't respond. I don't see how that couldn't happen. Um, 
They also did, you know, it, it just seems to me that the membership was not engaged as much as they could be. Um, and, you know, there just wasn't anything happening uh, for most of the time. You know, there was a lot happening as far as mutual aid and supporting each other and all of this. Um, but, you know, just not a lot to pressure the company. And, you know, uh, and, you know, I offer those critiques at knowing that I'm not a member of the UMWA. I offer those critiques knowing that I'm 26 years old, uh, you know, a young person. I offer those critiques knowing that I've never been in a strike, right? I've never, I, and, and, you know, by the nature of my job, I will probably never be in a strike, right? And so, you know, I offer all those critiques with that caveat and in a, in a brotherly way and in good faith. Um, and with, I mean, with a heavy heart, uh, it, you know, I, I just, I can't, it, words can't, you know, my heart just aches for the miners there. Um, and, and my chest burns with anger at the people um, that, that are responsible for this. And I've been reading a couple of books about a, um, about a paper strike that was lost in 1987 and 1988 in J, Maine. Um, that was real. That's really fascinating, and I'd recommend people read the books. Um, Julius Getman. And I want to get these people on. These people, these authors are still alive. I want to get them on the show sometime. The books are fantastic. Um, but Julius Getman's uh, "The Betrayal of Local 14: Paper Workers, Politics, and Permanent Replacements," and uh, Peter Kelman's uh, "Divided We Fall: The Story of the Paper Workers Union." I recommend folks read them. Uh, they're really good, and I can't help but see the similarities in this, you know, because uh, this was a long strike. It was called off after a year and a half, I think, or two years. And at the end of the strike, um, a striker wrote uh, this letter um, that I think is a really good place to kind of... Uh, kind of wrap up for me anyway. I don't know if Adam is going to have anything else to say, but uh, this was by Phil Edwards. He was a paper striker, member of the United Paper Workers International Union uh, who participated in the strike against international paper in J. Maine in 1987 and 1988. Uh, Phil Edwards. Brothers and sisters, family members, friends of labor. My father built bridges under fire in France in World War I, and my brother died in a B-17 over England in World War II. I landed on a beach in North Korea in 1950, and oh, the country and the government were behind us in those days. But in 1987, in J. Maine, we had a war about corporate greed and the depredation of workers' rights. And where then was the government? And where then was the country? Did the governor of the state or the president of the United States stand up to corporate America? They did, in fact, encourage the pillaging of workers' hard-earned benefits. Where was the United States Congress? Where was the national media during our struggle? What does the International Executive Board think is the important issue here? Are they concerned that they will deplete their funds? I tell you, they should have been ready to sell everything they own to win this conflict. Are working people anywhere naive enough to think this is not their work? To those of you who helped, and your numbers are legion, I give my thanks, my most earnest and heartfelt thanks. 
but to those who did not, I would paraphrase John Donne. Ask not for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. Sisters and brothers, I do not have the words to ease your pain on this sorry occasion. Each of you have given your time, your energy, and your personal fortune to advance the cause of labor during this dark age. History will record that you, like the embattled farmers at Concord Bridge, fired a shot heard round the world. Do not despair that the battle was lost along another front. Mark well that in this place you stood, shoulder to shoulder, faced the enemy, and did not flinch nor bow down. I have known some of you for most of the 30-odd years that I have worked at International Paper. I have found you to be honest trademen in the main tradition. Since the strike began, I have come to realize how much I value your friendship. I have seen lambs become lions and sparrows become eagles. From your ranks have emerged salesmen and lawyers, organizers and orators. You have been tempered into steel in the crucible of war, and you will never again be as you were before. I could not allow this moment to pass without telling you how proud my wife and I are to have soldiered with you. All right, and that is, for real, going to wrap things up for us here on the Valley Labor Report. Thank you so much again for joining us, if indeed you did join us for this special pre-tape holiday episode. I have been your host, Joe Harrison, the faceless man behind the camera who usually does the graphics and the video editings and the like for the first time ever in front of the microphone. Not in front of the camera, because I didn't have a camera that worked. So, but in front of the microphone. And uh, it has been a thrill. It has been a ride. We have had some laughs. We have had some thrills spills laughs and games as they say so thank you all so much for joining me today and be sure to join us again next weekend for another look back at some great moments in the valley labor reports history i hope you all have a great remainder of the holiday season if you are celebrating or not either way i hope you have a great remainder of your year and everybody Cross your various extremities and hope that perhaps, just perhaps, this Christmas, folks like Mr. Elon Musk or Mr. Jeff Bezos might indeed have their own little Christmas carol experience and wake up the next morn feeling generous and seeing the errors of their ways and deciding to help all of the tiniest of Timothys. And indeed, to help our society become a better place for all of us. Like, for real. But either way, this gives me a thrill every time I have the opportunity to say it, which is only two times now in this show, but I will say it one last time. All power to the workers. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.